gospel. What does it look like to live in the grace of Christ? I've grown up in church. I know the stories, the songs, the prayers. My head knows that we are justified by faith and not acts. But what about my heart? Do I truly believe that I am chosen and set free? And what if it's not all about me? The world is so quick to draw lines, to highlight our differences, but the word says that we are all one in Jesus, that the gospel of grace is available to all who believe. I don't want to be ruled by my excuses. God, help me see. Remind me that I walk by the Spirit, even when I'm tired and even when I'm stretched. Day by day, help me become more like Christ. Thank you for your Spirit and thank you for your Word. Teach me how to live here and now. Well, we're so glad that you're joining us at the beginning of this significant series for our church. No matter what site you're at, you're most welcome today. We are a culture of skeptics because so many people and organizations have told us and have promised us that something is such a good deal. It's free. And then, of course, we read the fine print a little too late and find out it's not as free as we thought. We are continually bombarded by advertisers saying, if you just join our phone plan, you'll get a free phone. But then they ask for your firstborn child two months later in the fine print. What is free is never free. It's like every single medical ad on television these days. You're watching it, paying attention or not, and you hear some new product has come out. And they promise that this is a guarantee, this is going to help you. And if you noticed on all these amazing medical ads, everyone is always good looking no matter their age. They're always walking on a beach, they're buying a purse, they're having a handcrafted coffee. coffee. There's always a couple on a plane off to a vacation. The images that are being portrayed to us is, this is the life you've always wanted and everything's happy and okay. And everyone's smiling. But at the same time, the amazing life you and I have always wanted is being portrayed on a medical ad. Suddenly the voice says, well, everyone is still smiling. While you're taking this product, you will experience depression, weight gain, and also uh, weight loss all at once. You will lose your hair. You might lose your sight. You will die. This is a great product. So again and again, the phrases in our culture that we throw around, it's too good to be true, Nothing is ever free. Don't believe what you hear. It's never free. Are embedded in the DNA of our worldview. So then when Christians come along and they declare that there's a good thing and it's an amazing thing and then they use the phrase and it's free. We all instinctively, even as Christians sometimes go, I'm not sure if that's so true. Welcome to our first major series out of a letter called Galatians. What we're about to read today and over the fall was written somewhere between 49 and 55 AD. This means that this ancient letter was written somewhere between 16 and 22 years after Jesus' death and his actual physical resurrection. The main character is Paul. 
He's established a group of churches in what we call Turkey today. They're filled with Jews and non-Jews, both worshiping Jesus, which at this moment, by the way, is incredible and radical and unheard of in ways we just don't get today. And after Paul establishes these little amazing places of faith, he goes and leaves to the rest of the Roman Empire to plant more churches. And when he leaves in his absence, something terribly goes wrong. And the crisis that we're going to walk through is actually a gift to us. Why? Because less than two decades after Jesus literally rose from the dead, Paul in a clear way outlines what Christianity is and what it's not and defines, is it free or is it not? So if you're a seeker, by the way, or a skeptic, or you're spiritual, or you're trying to understand the Christian faith, or you're trying to come back, this series is for you. Because you're going to fully understand by the end of this what this truly is. And by the way, many of us are Christians in our gatherings. This little letter is so amazing. It's foundational to all that we believe. But the promises in the letter and the freedom that's outlined and the unity that is given is helpful and encouraging as we're trying to live out our Christian life in a busy, global, pluralistic world. So this is how it begins. Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men or, or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead and, and all the brothers and sisters with me. Now I just need to stop right at the beginning and point this out. Somewhere around 16 years after the Jesus event, Paul and all sorts of other people who used to hate each other who are now together are proclaiming three amazing things. Jesus really lived, Jesus really died, and Jesus really came back from the dead. Oh, and why does that matter? Well, it's the foundation of our whole faith. But more than that, it helps to build the case for the real historical resurrection. Now, years ago, you might have not been around, I preached a series called Smoke and Mirrors. Can an honest intellectual person really believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead? And we, we walked through all the historical evidence. And if you weren't here, please go back and listen to that podcast. It will help you in your journey. But this, again, is so significant. This brings intellectual credibility to our faith. I love what Tim Keller said in one of his books. He said, for a highly altered, fictionalized account of an event to take hold, a firm hold of the public imagination, it would be necessary that the eyewitnesses and their children and their grandchildren would all be long dead. They must be off the scene so they cannot contradict or debunk the embellishments or the falsehood of the story. But the Gospels were written far too soon for that to occur. And not only that, it's the same here. Galatians, this is being written 16 years after. And Paul is saying, all those people are still around. And by the way, Jesus really did rise from the dead. I'm telling you, you can even go ask the eyewitnesses, they're around. But there's more. There's not just a bold proclamation that one man who died actually came back from the dead. There's something else going on. Let me read the verse again. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Okay, so we've got to ask ourselves a question. Why does Paul, one verse in, one line in, seem so defensive? Like he's defending his role. Why does he feel so protective, so reactionary? Well, that brings all of us to the heart of the crisis already. Paul leaves. And after he leaves, there's a group of false teachers that come along, and now Paul is off the scene. They say, actually, you can't really trust Paul, and actually, he's not an apostle, just so you know, and actually, the gospel, the good news, the thing he told you was true, isn't actually true. It's not complete. It's actually false, and Paul is an imposter. 
So Paul now needs to write back to the churches and say, actually, no, I'm not having a personal crisis. I'm not insecure. I'm not angry that someone disagrees with me. I actually need to remind you, I'm not a lone ranger. I'm not working alone. I'm here with many brothers and sisters, but actually, I am an apostle. So we're now sitting here in 2019 going, oh my goodness, what's an apostle and why does that matter? So everyone put their thinking cap on because if we get this, we're going to get the whole book. Now the original office, the role, the job description of the apostle was the original 12 that hung out with Jesus. And they were different. Well, they were different for a lot of reasons, but they were different in this way. They had the same authority as Old Testament prophets. They could write and they could speak scripture. And there was criteria to become what you called an apostle. They had been with Jesus since the beginning of his ministry. They had a personal call from Jesus himself. They were witnesses to Jesus' physical resurrection. And they end up, of course, writing the foundational teaching of the church. This is a limited group that Jesus has decided you read about this in Acts 1.12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. Those who were present were Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew. And you got James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. And they all joined together consistently in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Oh, and with Jesus' brothers, like Jude and James, as an example. So that's the apostles. And because of the strong association between the 12 tribes of Israel... And the 12 apostles, when Judas takes his own life, they replace him. And there's a criteria for the replacement. You see it in Acts 121. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who's been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John the Bap- John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up for us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his notice, his resurrection. So that's the criteria of a capital A apostle. You got 12 of them. And as you read the New Testament, then it gets more confusing. Because then you start continually reading the New Testament and all these other people, men and women, Junius is an example, or, or Barnabas are also called apostles, but they don't meet this criteria. You're like, oh my goodness, why is this so complicated? Because it's the spiritual gift of apostleship. So just so we're working this out, you've got the office, the job description of apostle, limited. And then you've got a spiritual gift called apostleship, which we talked about in our last series in spiritual gifts. Then Paul comes along, and this is, guy, this is a guy named Saul originally, and he's from Tarsus. Absolutely Jewish, but more than that, educated as a Roman citizen, grew up in a city called Tarsus, major cosmopolitan center, wrote and spoke multiple languages. He studied under a guy named Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers in Judaism in his time and still considered today, one of the greatest intellects of Judaism. Saul was his personal understudy. Saul was at the heart of trying to stop the Christian movement. He thought we were a cult and an aberration in the Jewish faith and needed to be shut down. He was there when the first Christian was murdered. And as he was on his way to arrest another group of us in a place called Damascus, it says in Acts 9, as he nears Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and Saul Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and he, I will tell you what you need to do. So this is when Saul becomes Paul, keep up with me, and becomes the greatest thinker of Christianity. And you need to ask yourself the question, and why did he change? Because he was argued into Christianity? 
Because he looked at a new series of facts? Because it became an advantage to be a Christian? No. Was he gullible? Was he unstable? Was he st- No, none of those things. This is what he says. I personally encountered the physically risen Jesus who I thought was a fraud and now I actually know is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. In 72 hours after Saul gets knocked down and he becomes Paul, this is what Jesus says in Acts 9.15. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to non-Jews and their kings and to the Jews too. So Paul comes along and says, okay, I've been commissioned by Jesus too, and I've seen Jesus after the resurrection, and God the Father and Jesus have asked me to do this job. I didn't want this job. I hated all of you. Now I'm one of you. So actually, guess what? I am an apostle. So this is how this whole conversation begins. And then Paul keeps writing and he says, to the churches in Galatia, so not one, there's all sorts of them, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is not a hallmark greeting. So much more is going on here. Grace, undeserved mercy that leads to what? Peace, shalom, a restored relationship between you and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And basically, here's what Paul's saying. You've experienced this, and this is God's ongoing gift over you. Grace leads to peace, cause and effect, root and fruit. God's free, kind, undeserved, unmerited love is given through, by, and in Jesus alone. And again, notice... You can't earn grace and peace. You can't achieve grace and peace. You can't seduce grace and peace. You can't buy grace and peace. You can't steal it. God gives it to us because he is love. Amen, everyone? So notice, where does grace and peace come from? God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before I move on, I just need to say this again. I've said this twice in the last year. It's really important. Do you notice that the Father, God, and the Lord Jesus Christ are on the same level. Let me remind you who's writing this. Paul is Jewish. Paul is a world-class rabbi. Paul is an Orthodox Jew. And he is placing Jesus, a carpenter's son from Nazareth, on the same footing as God, the one true God, the God that walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, the the God that met Noah, the God that encountered Moses at the burning bush, the God that commissioned Isaiah and, and Ezekiel and Elijah. Here's what you need to catch. Right at the beginning of our movement, we understood something. Jesus is God and equal to the Father. That's why, by the way, in all the great Christian creeds, this is confessed. Here's the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God. The Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten and not created, of one essence with the Father, through whom all things were made. So 16 years after Jesus rose from the dead, our greatest enemy is now proclaiming that there's grace and forgiveness and, and peace through Jesus who's equal with the Father. And then he says, Jesus, verse 4, gave himself, ready, for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, watch this. Jesus, he writes, gave himself for us. 
He sacrificed himself. He took the bullet. He threw himself on the grenade. He paid off the unpayable mortgage. Now, catch this. Jesus was not forced. Jesus was not commanded. Because Jesus loved the Father so much and loved us so much, he came for us. And what does it say? Jesus came to do one thing, to give us nice teaching, to show us the nice way, to be a really moral person. No, no, he came to rescue us. Now, this is the beauty and this is the offense of the Christian faith. The Christian faith teaches that every single human being needs to be rescued. You don't rescue people unless they're lost. You don't rescue people unless they're in a no-win, state, uh, hopeless situation. If you're drowning, you don't throw them a book on swimming and say, learn how to swim. If they're drowning, you don't throw them your iPhone and say, watch the latest YouTube video, and then you'll be okay. You jump in and you rescue them. And then Paul says this. Every human being needs to be rescued from this thing. Well, what's this thing? He calls it this present evil age. Hmm. So then you got to sit back and go, whether you're a seeker or spiritual or skeptic or Christian, well, what does Paul mean when he says this present evil age? Well, the best description of that is written by him later in Ephesians 2, where he wrote this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. So Paul says, we as humans are not in trouble. We're not out of harmony. We're not just having a bad day. We don't have a spiritual cold. He goes way farther. He says, every human being that's living right now, no matter who they are, are spiritually dead. Whoa. Not metaphor, not a future thing, a present thing. And he says, every single human being's life is marked by two things, transgression and sin. Every human being's missed the mark. Every single human being, religious or not, has fallen away from God. Sin is is when our thoughts and our words and deeds violate God's heart, God's will, and God's law. And notice the word trespassing. We go to places we're not allowed to go according to God. As another wrote, sin is the act of choosing your own way and leaving God out of the picture. So as for you, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. Wow, that's a sort of downer. He says, oh, I'm not done yet. in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, oh, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So he says, every human being is sinful, and every human being is involved in this thing called the world. Now, the world doesn't mean the globe. It means the current state of affairs that are anti-God. And let me describe to all of us today what that looks like, because it takes all sorts of forms. Their first form is secular. I don't need God. I'm just fine, thank you very much. Or there is no God. The second form is amoral. There's no absolute truth. There, there's, no, there's nothing. Listen, I'm going to define what truth is. It's postmodernism. Here's another version of the world, materialism. You glorify the market. You glorify things. You want things, and you don't need God. Here's the next form of uh, the current, present, evil age. Religion. Every religion on earth says, I will do something, and through doing that thing or that system, I will be saved. And then here's the next version of the world, spirituality. I'm a spiritual person. I'm involved in hot yoga and self-help. And because of those things, I will define what I need in my purpose. Here's the last version of worldliness, being nice. You're like, what? We're Canadians. We're nice. Yes, it's a problem. I mean, it's really good we're nice. We were joking beforehand. I love that in our country, when you go to a Tim Hortons, everyone lines up perfectly and is very kind. I've been to other cultures. That is not usually what takes place. But 
The average person that you talk to in our country, when you talk about the needing of rescue, they say, I don't need rescue. I'm a nice Canadian. I give to the United Way. I stand appropriately in Tim Horton's lines. We're nice people. Now, here's the crazy thing. If you got the secular person and the postmodern person and the materialist, consumeristic, sort of capitalist person and the deeply fundamentally religious person and the spiritual person and the nice Tim Horton's person all in a room, they would all say, you all are wrong. And they'd all argue with each other. And then Paul comes along and says, actually, you're all the same. Because here's what unites all of you together. Whether you're religious or you're spiritual or you're an atheist or you're agnostic or you're the nice person in the line, who's at the center of all of that? You. I'm going to get better with God because I'm religious. I, I'm going to get better with the universe because I'm spiritual. I don't believe God exists, so I'm going to trust in human potential. But who's at the center of the conversation every single time? A human being, not God. So Paul comes along and says, we've all sinned, and we've all transgressed, and we have invented multiple different ways of excluding him called worldliness. Oh, and if it's not bad enough, there's also this thing, this person named Satan. He's the God of this world. He's actually involved in all this stuff too. And then he says in another place, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. That's this present evil age. And then here's the amazing moment. And then Paul reminds us, Jesus has rescued us and rescued those early Christians from the world and the flesh and the devil. Amen. All of that. He saved us from religion and he saved us from false spirituality and he saved us from agnosticism and atheism and he saved us from Satan and he saved us from death and he saved us from sin. Now, maybe you haven't caught this, but in five verses, an intro Paul outlined the whole Christian faith right there. You know who God is. You know who Jesus is. You know why Jesus came. You know why Jesus, uh, what he did. He came back from the dead. We know we've been given the gifts of grace and peace only through Jesus. We know we've been rescued from sin, the world, and the devil. And the underlining theme is this. We couldn't earn that, buy that, steal it. God gave it because God is love. As I was reading this week with my middle daughter at devotions at night, I love this little quote from one of her devotional books. God created it, we broke it, Jesus came and fixed it. That's the Christian faith. Amen. I was like, okay, yeah, that's good. All right. So we got all that amazing stuff. So Paul's an apostle and there's the Christian faith and wow, we've been saved. Isn't that incredible? And then Paul says in verse six, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and you're turning, oh, to a different gospel. You're all starting to give all that amazing stuff up and you're now trusting in something else. And now this brings us back to the false teachers who said Paul was not an apostle. So now here's the question. What are those people now teaching? Well, they're called Judaizers. And Judaizers posed a really interesting problem because they were Jewish people, but they were not opposing the church's claims. They actually were Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah and Jesus rose physically from the dead. They actually believed the guy came back from the dead and they actually believed he's the fulfillment of the Jewish faith and they believed that Jesus was the only one who could forgive and they believed Jesus was the only way to heaven and they believed Jesus was God in flesh. Now, if you were hanging out with them, you'd be like, that person is absolutely a Christian. But Paul says, hold on a sec. Because they went one step further. They started teaching, oh, you need to say all that about Jesus. Oh, 
and you have to fulfill Jewish laws, then you get saved. We see it in Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers and sisters, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So unless you're circumcised, unless you keep the Sabbath, unless you obey the dietary laws of the Old Testament, in other words, unless you obey Moses' law, you cannot be saved. God who is holy will not look through Jesus' work and save you because you have not become religiously Jewish. Now, the question you got to ask is, why are they doing this? Why are they teaching this? Well, it's simple. They're scared. And here's why they're scared. I love what one scholar said. Before long, there would be so many more non-Jewish Christians than Jewish Christians in the world. And many Jewish Christians no doubt fear that the influx of so many converts from paganism and all this darkness would weaken the church's moral standards. So, so how do you control what God's doing? Oh, easy. Require all non-Jews to be admitted as others had been historically into Judaism, circumcision, and the law. So this is their answer. They have right motives, and they're trying to love God. And here's what we've all got to catch today. Most false teachers don't know they're false teachers. When we think about false teachers, we always think like, ha, 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 they're in the back going, oh, I'm seducing these people. No. Most wolves do not know they are wolves. Most false teachers actually think they're not giving up the good news. They're helping the good news. They're improving on the good news. They're actually protecting God. So now Paul says to this group of churches, you're on the brink of a moral and spiritual crisis. You're about to shipwreck your faith. You're about to desert Jesus. You're about to change allegiances. You're walking away from Jesus himself. This is not another legitimate version of the gospel. This is day and night, oil and water, life and death. So here's the good news. Ready? You want to write this down. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Here's a false gospel. Jesus plus anything becomes nothing. Let me say it again. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus plus anything becomes nothing. Let me read this again. Galatians 1.6. I am so astonished that you are quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you now into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. You already know you can't prove yourself to a perfect God. You can never remove the power of sin. You can't overcome death. You can't face down Satan. You can't stop being worldly by religious acts or being faithfully Jewish. I mean, he would have said, we're all Jews and tried it and it didn't work. Actually, the law shows us our need for our, a savior because it reveals our sin. He'd write this later in Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, you become aware, conscious of your problem, your sin. If being more religious could open the door, then you have to do it perfectly every single time because the standard is God and God is what? Perfect. Jesus' half-brother would write this later in James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles just at one point is guilty of breaking it all. So Paul goes, why are you trying to be perfect? Why are you trying to do the impossible? That's not freedom, that's slavery. That's a burden you don't need to carry anymore and you're picking it up. You are, ready, already free. The reason why you trusted in Jesus in the first place and the reason why you trusted in Jesus' work alone in the first place is because Jesus is the only one in history that kept the law perfectly. He did the job we couldn't do. So stop trying to, ready, save yourself and just stick with Jesus. And then Paul does a very un-Canadian thing. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we've preached to you, let them be under God's curse. In the most unequivocal way, in the strongest of language, Paul says this is the red line, this is the plumb line for evaluating and judging every other truth claim. And then he says, let them be under God's curse. Let anyone who does what they are doing be delivered up and given over, as one wrote, to the judicial wrath of God. Let anyone who does this be damned to hell. That's the modern version of this. Now, Paul's not saying, damn you people to hell. He's saying what you're doing is you're giving out death and you're calling it life. What you say, you say it's life-giving, you're giving out poison. Now here's a moment we all need to stop and remember that when you listen to any teacher, including me, or any preacher and any thought leader, whether religious or not, and then on a deep personal level, when you think about your feelings and your sensations and your convictions and how you think about all things, they must be evaluated and judged by one thing, scripture. And more so, catch this, to reject Paul is to reject Jesus. Jesus's words are given to Paul and he gives them to us. All sorts of people love Jesus's words, but they don't like Paul's words. But Jesus commissioned Paul to write these books to give them to the church. So when Paul is writing in these cases, it is Jesus talking to us. So Paul says it again. As I've already said, now let me say it again. If anyone's preaching to you another gospel than what you've accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now, am I trying to win the approval of human beings or God? Am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a slave to Jesus. People-pleasing. See, it's going to cost us to follow Jesus. People, pleasure, people pleasers yield to, pre, to, to pressure. It's always a temptation for us to love your reputation more than it is Jesus. It's always a temptation to love your family more than Jesus, or your neighbor more than Jesus, or your coworker more than Jesus. Because when you declare things like Jesus is the only way to heaven, or he's the only one who lived a perfect life, or he's the only one who's come back from the dead, he's the only way home, that is... Not people-pleasing, that's profoundly what? Offensive. So here's the question we need to ask, 2019, at this moment. What do false gospels look like right now in this church? What what do false gospels look like now? Because remember, the people who are preaching this 2,000 years ago could have signed the Apostles' Creed and said amen. And Paul still calls them what? False. Here's the two versions False ideas of how you meet God and get salvation. And number two, false ideas how you must live after you meet God through Jesus in a real personal way. So let me walk this through. Lean in. False teachers always will tell you you must add to the work of Jesus to get saved. So they say things like, well, accept Jesus, but plus this thing. So uh, accept Jesus, but you have to be baptized. Uh, uh, accept Jesus in his work, but no dancing and no parting and no chewing gum. Um, uh, It's Jesus, but you need to go to confirmation and communion. Now, those things are not wrong, but they don't open the door to the thing called eternal life. Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace that you get saved through faith. What do you have faith in? In Jesus. It is what? Never from yourself. It's always a gift of God. It's never by works. So no one gets to boast or brag or what? Be at the center of the party again. 
Grace alone, faith alone, and the work of Jesus alone. Good works like baptism or confessing your sin to another or serving in a church or life change, are, they are necessary, but they don't get you saved. They're evidence you are saved. They're not the keys that open the door. Now, the second false gospel not talked about in Galatians that is incredibly prevalent in the church, including in this one, is the reverse of the first. The first false gospel says, actually, you're not free, and actually, you need to do all this stuff and help Jesus out. The second version says, actually, you are free, and you're so free, because Jesus is so amazing, you get to live any way you want. They teach, since I have grace and salvation, then live like hell, even though you're going to heaven. And it's okay even to break God's word, because you know what? At the end of the day, God is love. Oh, I heard that before? Jesus' half-brother, Jude, summarized this false teaching in one verse, Jude 4. These are false teachers. These are godless men who change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. So they come along and say the opposite. They say trespassing, sin, it's okay. You have freedom to do what you want. Actually, it's your right to do what you want because sin is wrong, but don't worry, Jesus has covered it. So false teachers this way twist God's free forgiveness in Jesus and give you permission. They give you a license to sin. They say God is love and he'd never want to stop you from what you need to do. You have God's forgiveness and there's no more penalty. And this is how they deny the sovereignty and the lordship of Jesus by saying immorality is okay. Now, immorality can mean greed or idolatry. In, in this case, in Jude, it's sexual. And this word immorality is the same one that Peter uses. And again, like this is a sexual conversation that Jude's having. And, and again, very quickly, if you read the Bible from beginning to end, there is a unified biblical worldview from sex. Sex is given from God. God invented it. It's pleasurable. It's fun. It's for procreation. It's for love. It's amazing. But for Moses, for Jesus, for Paul, for Peter, for the author of Hebrews, the sexual starting point and end point is always Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. So the teachers come along and say, Jesus is great. And Jesus is the son of God and Jesus died for your sin and Jesus took the bullet so you can live your life any way you want. Everything's covered, grace, grace, and more grace. And since God is love, he would never stop you from doing what you feel is okay or right. And by the way, though Jude is dealing with sexual sin here, that's just the example. You can throw any sin. Well, God, would, God really wants you to, you know, to be happy and you're not really happy in your right now. So just, you know, just divorce your spouse because God wants you to be happy and go marry that other person. God's just fine with that. Even though the Bible says, don't do that. Oh, no, no, listen, listen, you know, God wants you to be so happy in your life and to get, a, get advanced in life. So you know what? I know the 10 commandments say don't steal, but don't worry about it. Stealing a little is just fine to get ahead. And Jesus is going to cover it in the end anyway. So you're just fine. That is a false gospel. I love what Tim Keller did when he said this. Religion stresses holiness over grace. Irreligion stresses freedom over holiness. Christianity is freedom through grace that leads to holiness. When does false gospel show up in our lives? I love what one guy named Scott McKnight once wrote. He says, being seduced to a false gospel doesn't happen like that. It happens over time, the brokenness of life. It's a slow, quiet, 
process in the background. It happens when you have a genuine personal crisis. It happens when life is actually pretty crappy and hard. It happens when you experience a tragedy and you don't know what to do. False gospels always show up around loss and pain. It happens when the culture switches so strongly or your own story or experience clashes with what the scriptures say. So when the culture is going this way and the Bible is going this way and when your own experiences or feelings or story is going this way and the Bible is going this way, the temptation is to look for a more accommodating option to have both. It also happens to people that are angry and fearful and are scared of the complexity of the world. And so you put up more boundaries than God says you're allowed to, to control. If you're a seeker here today, or skeptical, maybe you grew up in church and you're trying to come back, I I just want to say this. In the midst of this very difficult conversation, you just heard the good news. Again, by the way, this church is great with doubt. We are fine with questions. We believe in having a robust faith that is both intellectually grounded and experientially grounded. If you're not really sure if Jesus rose from the dead, that's the conversation you need to have. Forget the debate, does God exist or not? Did Jesus live and did Jesus die and did Jesus come back from the dead? Because if he did, all this matters. Like I said, go back and listen to that series, Smoke and Mirrors. Hang out with us at Alpha. This is the very conversation I was having with my Alpha group on Wednesday night. But I also want you to hear the good news in this moment. This could be, in this very moment, a day of encounter for you. A day of salvation. This actually could be the moment you actually say yes to Jesus and his good news. You, you say, well, how, how would I say yes to him? It's very simple. In your own heart or out loud, you say, Jesus, I'm not going to trust in me anymore or my power or my actions. You know where you were. Maybe you're the spiritual person or the atheistic person or the deeply religious person. You say, I'm not going to trust in me. And then here's the admission. I need you to rescue me. I need you to overcome Satan. I need you to overcome death. I need you to forgive me. Be Savior and Lord. Like, just make me new. When, when a person humbles themselves before God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and says to Jesus, I need rescue. This is what I trusted in. I'm no longer trusting in that, and I'm trusting in you. That is when Jesus shows up and changes people. And if that is you, listen, I'm just a guy. I'm 44 years, 44 years old. I'm here today, gone tomorrow. My boss matters, not me. If God is speaking to you at this moment, then do not ignore his voice. Today is the day of salvation. Just say yes and turn. Now there's another group, and this is rarely talked about in church. What if you're listening to me today and you're like, oh my goodness, I have taught a false gospel. Or I believe a false gospel. And I still listen to Bethel and Hillsong and go to Connect Group. What do I do? Here's the good news in the scriptures. Peter denied Jesus three times and Jesus still kept him. So here's what you need to do. If you are a person that has believed a false gospel, Jesus plus, or I can live life any way I want because of Jesus, 
or you have taught this, here's all you need to do. You need to go before Jesus and say, I have believed or taught a false gospel. And then you need to say, forgive me and help me now to move forward in ready, grace, and peace. But don't run from this moment. Because remember, and we've got to catch this. The original false teachers believed all the right things, but did an addition or a subtraction that made them false. So if Jesus is convicting you, it's not anger, it's come home. And then if you've done that, you need to go back to some others and say, you know what? What I taught you about Jesus actually was sort of off. And can I just tell you what I've learned? Here's the last thing. I love what Paul does by ending by saying, am I involved in people pleasing or not? People pleasing cannot have more power than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've talked about this a lot in this church. It's getting harder, more difficult to be a genuine follower of Jesus in Canada and the West right now. Well, I mean, we're not really suffering like our brothers and sisters, but it's getting more difficult, right? Modernism, postmodernism, you know, post-social, no truth, all the religions of the world. Like, now, we are called never to be rude as Christians, never. We're never to be prideful. We're never to be abusive. We're never supposed to be the crap disturber in the room. We're not supposed to be intentionally offensive, But I love what Paul says, and it's a very good word to use old language in season for us. This is a call to be unapologetic about the good news of Jesus. This is why Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to anyone who believes, Jews and non-Jews. And just catch why this matters. Why was Paul so direct about this? Because he wants people to be what? Free. And so as Christians, at this moment, do not be ashamed. Do not be concerned. Do not be fearful of the unashamed truth of what Jesus is. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ sent Jesus to rescue us from this present age. And this present age involves sin and the demonic and worldliness. And if we accept him, he gives us grace and peace and he saves us out of that and he guarantees that we will be raised from the dead like he, will be raised, like he was raised from the dead. We do not compromise on this. This is the gospel. That is Christianity. And that is what we hold out to the world. Why? Because we're moral, because we're religious? No, because what? There's freedom in that. That is better than atheism. That is better than agnosticism. That is better than every religious system on earth. That is better than spirituality. And it's even better than being nice. Why? Because in that you encounter God, death is overcome, and there is freedom in Jesus' name. So as a Christian, do not give in to false teaching, do not be ashamed of the gospel. One last note, and then I'm going to pray for us as a community as we get going in the series. I know hundreds of us are involved in connect groups, and we've written a new study guide for our whole church. By the way, it's free, connected to this. It's going to be on the website, connected to the sermon. It's also going to be posted on social media. So if you want to download the study guide for this whole series, it's going to be in those locations. Even if you want to do it for your personal devotions, it's available for you to go deeper and work this out. So would you mind just standing at every single site and let's commit ourselves to this great truth of Jesus. Number one, Lord, thank you that your word 
uh, never changes. Thanks that it's relevant in every generation. Thank you, and here's the big thank you. Thank you that you've saved us from false gospels. Thank you. I mean, we, we could not in any way, shape, or form earn ourselves to salvation. So thank you for taking the bullet. On the other hand, Lord, thank you, Lord, you also tell us the guardrails of life. Would you lead this church in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you fill us with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And would you help us tell the gospel of Jesus? And among our brothers and sisters, we also pray this. For us who have sinned by teaching a false gospel, we repent. For those who are among us who don't know you yet, Jesus, encounter them. And may there just be a consistent turning to the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done and what you're going to do. Amen. Oh, 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 oh,